Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Lawrence Katsaris, the Technical Support Manager at Metagenics, and I'm joined on this episode by Dr. Dale Bredesen. Dr. Bredesen is a clinician and researcher who has spent over 30 years of his career focusing on neurology and ageing until more recently has taken the world by storm by proving that the process of the neurological degeneration occurring in Alzheimer's can not only be stopped, but reversed. What's more, his treatment is not a wonder drug, but a holistic approach that addresses the underlying metabolic and lifestyle factors which drive this debilitating disease. In this informative podcast, Dr. Bredesen shares his successful, groundbreaking strategies for understanding assessing and treating patients with cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease, whilst walking us through the three metabolic subtypes. He shares some of his case studies which highlight how simple wellness strategies such as diet, exercise and improvement of specific metabolic parameters can significantly enhance neurological health. This episode is rich with Dr. Bredesen's experience and research in the field and is sure to redefine your clinical approaches to addressing cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. Well, Dale, it is an absolute honour to have you on the podcast, so thank you so much for joining me and welcome. Thanks very much. Great to be here. You were internationally recognised as an expert on neurodegeneration and are clearly leading the field in research and on treatment on Alzheimer's disease. But prior to 2013, your published papers were very much focused on molecular biology and now it's all about applying a functional medicine approach. Would you mind explaining how that transition came about? Sure, that's a great question. So we've had the lab up and running for 27 years now, and uh, frankly, I I thought I was going to do my entire career uh, with transgenic mice and fruit flies and cells, and I never thought we'd ever get back to humans, which is where this all started all those years ago. But what happened was that we started to see that as we looked at the fundamental nature of neurodegeneration, which was the lab goal, that was uh, our interest for many, many years, looking at what is the nature of the process, what are the molecules that actually drive the process of neurodegeneration. We were really surprised to see that when you look at the mechanistics, what you see is, for example, at Alzheimer's disease, a molecule APP, amyloid precursor protein, that is functioning like a molecular switch. So if you have a number of things that drive it in one direction, you're more on the side of synaptic reorganization, synaptic loss, and that is the pro-Alzheimer's side. And on the other hand, other things that would drive it in the other direction where you actually cleave the APP and you make uh, two peptides, for example, SAPP-alpha and uh, CTF-alpha, that are supportive, they're anti-caspase, anti-programmed cell death, um, and they support neurite extension and synaptic maintenance. So we realized that, that we were seeing very much the same sort of thing that you see with, for example, osteoporosis, where you have osteoblastic activity and osteoclastic. In this case, we were seeing synaptoblastic signaling, and there are dozens of things that contribute to the synaptoblastic side. And then on the other hand, there are dozens of things that contribute to the synaptoclastic side. And these things turn out to be, again, looking directly at the molecular mechanisms, things like estradiol and vitamin D and NF-kappa B activation. So we realize that this fits beautifully with what we 
understand from the epidemiology of Alzheimer's. So yes, if you have a pro-inflammatory state, you're at increased risk. If you have APOE4 and you have a pro-inflammatory state, you're at increased risk. If you have a sudden decrease in estradiol or a decrease in vitamin D, these are all associations. And now we were seeing the mechanisms by which these fed into this critical balance. So what we see is that people who have Alzheimer's disease or are headed for Alzheimer's are on the wrong side of that balance. And so we realized, okay, if we're going to develop something that actually combats that, it doesn't really make sense to try to do it with a single agent because there are too many inputs to this. Instead, what we want is to go through all those pathways. We want to make, we want to make an impact on all those pathways. So that's what really kind of changed our minds. We started to realize, okay, if we're going to develop an optimal approach to cognitive decline, we're gonna to wanna to go after the many different molecular pathways that all contribute. Great, and that's, that really took you away from that sort of single bullet to really what I've heard you describe as a, which I really like is that sort of buckshot approach of trying to touch on, touch on all of those. And you started to explain some of those because I know that you discussed this as, like 36 holes in the roof right and medicine's really just trying to plug up one hole right and so some of these other influence factors would you mind going into what is where are the metabolic abnormalities that can influence uh, alzheimer's disease it's a great question so five years ago i sat down and when we started seeing all this uh, coming out of the lab i made a list of all the things that will influence ultimately that balance in the app signaling and that's how we ended up with 36 that's why we originally said that because there were 36 things if for example if we want to increase uh, SAPP alpha we want to decrease the beta cleavage we want to decrease the gamma cleavage we want to decrease the phosphotau we want to decrease the NF kappa B activation all that sort of stuff on and on and on we came up originally with 36 different mechanisms and there, there are certainly we have we know about some more now but you know I don't think it's going to be a thousand I think it's you know we're on the order of you know 50 to 70 in that range ultimately so the bottom line is that there are many things that do contribute and this includes for example things like um, the inflammatory status. So as you know, many people are walking around with leaky guts, um, with uh, neuroinflammation. Many people are walking around with HSCRPs of 2, 3, 5, 10, that sort of thing. Um, many people are walking around with suboptimal B12, with uh, high homocysteines, um, with uh, suboptimal folate levels, for example. Many people are walking around um, with vitamin Ds in the low 20s or high teens, very common. Uh, many people are walking around with a suboptimal estradiol to progesterone ratio, a suboptimal copper to zinc ratio. All of these things contribute to that balance, and of course, uh, exercise is a good one to think about. Uh, many of us are sitting around on the couch too much, and especially, you know, what do we do during the day? We go in and we sit at a computer and write. Um, probably a bad thing to do, as, as many people say, you know, sitting is the new smoking. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we want to be out doing more things, and that's, of course, what our, what our bodies and minds were, were meant to do. Um, so, and, and again, what the basics of diet, exercise, sleep, and stress all huge as part of the overall uh, 30, so-called so 36 holes. Um, those are all critical pieces. And then, of course, what kind of diet you're eating. And one of the things that we recommend is that 
people go through a minimum of a 12-hour fast between the end of dinner and the beginning of breakfast. Um, that's critical to induce autophagy. Uh, and so uh, along with that, we suggest a three-hour minimum from end of dinner to bedtime. Uh, and of course, some people with, for example, who are ApoE4 positive, they actually find that they do better with a 14 or 16 hour uh, fast instead of 12 hours. So all of these things turn out to be crucial from the one carbon metabolism to the various uh, vitamins to hormonal optimization. Many of the people that we see uh, with cognitive decline, even with very early cognitive decline, are suboptimal in their, for example, their free T3. Uh, is a typical one that is, and that's obviously a critical one because that's the, the active uh, thyroid hormone. So these are the sorts of things that we're seeing again and again and again. And to some extent, what we see is that people who have metabolic alterations are contributing to cognitive changes. So this is not just about looking at the brain and saying this is some sort of mysterious illness. This is about knowing if you are pre-diabetic, knowing if you have got an inflammation going on and so forth and so on. And looking at these dozens of things, part of wellness and it's part of cognitive wellness as, as well. The exciting part is that we're seeing reversals in early cognitive changes when we optimize those same parameters. Which is absolutely groundbreaking and fascinating. I'd love to talk about that in a second. But before we do, with regards to all these metabolic abnormalities, and, and I really like what you say there, where essentially, just like in all other metabolic conditions, it may, it'll break out at a weak link. And in susceptible individuals, that may be that it may be the Alzheimer's that develops. But you don't see that all Alzheimer's is the same, do you? No, so that's a really good point. So let's go back to what Alzheimer's actually is. One of the, our major laboratory interests over the last couple of decades has been to understand what this phenomenon that is referred to as Alzheimer's actually represents. Because as you know, it's incredibly common. About 15% of people will develop Alzheimer's during their lifetimes. If they have zero copies of ApoE4, then it's about 9%. If they have one copy, it's about 30%. If they have two copies, it's somewhere between 50 and 90%. It's more likely that they will get it than that they will escape it. So major, major issue. And what our studies showed in the laboratory is that we kind of have had it backwards, that what is being produced, when, when the body produces amyloid, this is actually a protective response to three fundamentally different uh, metabolic and toxic perturbations. And these actually line up with what we call type 1, type 2, and type 3 Alzheimer's disease. And of course, we see people who have part type 1, part type 2, that sort of thing. But the bottom line is the following. Your body will make amyloid uh, in response to infection slash inflammation. So if you've got an infectious agent, for example, Lyme, for example, HSV1, P. gingivalis from the oral bacteria, for example, uh, other Borrelia species, um, uh, Candida, for example, some of the various uh, molds, uh, pen uh, Penicillium, for example, uh, Asperg some of the Aspergillus, uh, Fumigatus, Niger, things like that. So lots of different things. Or sterile inflammation, things like um, sugar, AGEs, things like that. All of those things trigger amyloid production. And of course, it's a nice work out of Harvard showing that, yes, it actually makes sense because 
the amyloid uh, functions as an antimicrobial agent. So it actually makes good sense that this is a protective response, just as we've said. Type 2 is a little different in that you're now withdrawing. In this case, instead of the induction by inflammation, you have people who have very little inflammation going on, but they're making amyloid because they've had a reduction in trophic support. And that could be NGF, BDNF, vitamin D, estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, you can go on. If you reduce the trophic support to neuronal networks, amyloid is produced as part of a downsizing program, essentially. So when you think about it, you know, in your company, if you're going to, if you know, things aren't going well in your company, the first thing that you're gonna give up is hiring of new people. And that's exactly what goes on in the brain. You give up the ability to, uh, to hire, quote, new memories, to, to bring in new memories. And so that's often the canary in the mind. That's what we see first, this amnestic form. So that is, uh, that amnestic form tends to be both type one and type two in the presentation. Now the third one is a very, very different illness. It's really a fundamentally different illness, but we call it Alzheimer's because again, it has amyloid and it has tau, just like the others. So when you look at it pathologically, you say, okay, type three is also Alzheimer's, but it's very different in its presentation. And so that is the third reason that organisms make amyloid, which is to bind to toxins. And as an example, mercury, other divalent metals, things like copper, iron, uh, all of those things, um, the, the mercuries I mentioned, that you know, this will bind, the, the, uh, the amyloid binds these and actually binds them quite effectively. Um, it also interacts with biotoxins. So when you have type 3, you have exposure to some toxin. And we know it's type 3 typically because they tend to present with more cortical abnormalities instead of hippocampal abnormalities. And it's been known for years that about 10 to 15 percent of Alzheimer's patients will present not with the typical amnestic presentation, but instead will present with a cortical presentation. We see dyscalculias as a common one, for example. Um, we see people who have word-finding difficulties with aphasias, visual perceptual problems. A common thing that these people show up with is organizational difficulties, so-called executive dysfunction, suggesting frontal lobe dysfunction. Uh, so, and we see partial Gerstmanns is another one that you see. Uh, left-right uh, disorientation, prosopagnosia or facial blindness. Um, all of these things uh, we, assume, we associate with uh, cortical presentations. Um, and indeed, the pathology is often cortical. And these people tip us off that there's often a toxin involved, so we tend to look at these. And often these people are very different in that they tend to be younger, so they'll often present in their late 40s to their mid-50s, often associated with menopause or perimenopause in the women, of course, or andropause in the men. Um, and then uh, often ApoE4 negative, so just the opposite of the type 1s and types 2s. These people are typically ApoE4 negative and often family history negative, or if the family history is positive, only at a much more advanced age. So these are very, very different look to these people. So is it that type 3 presents very differently and type 1 and 2 will be much the same or are there clinical presentations that could tip off a practitioner that it may be type 1 or type 2? Right. So with respect to type 1 and type 2, they tend to present somewhat similarly. If anything, 
Type 2 is a little more pure in that it's a more of a pure amnestic syndrome. And a common comment I get from people with type 2 is that they say, I feel fine. I, you know, I don't have any problem because they don't have the inflammation going on. They say, I don't, I don't really think I have a problem. But their spouse will say, no, you do have a problem. You definitely are having problems with your memory. Yeah. Other than that, type 1 and 2 both tend to have the, an amnestic presentation. With type 1, with the inflammation, we do sometimes see some cortical changes. We do sometimes see uh, some frontal lobe dysfunction. And then there's something we call type 1.5 because it has features of both type 1 and type 2. And these are people who have glycotoxicity. So these are people who have insulin resistance and have high hemoglobin A1Cs typically. Um, often have pre-diabetes, although not always, uh, or full-blown type 2 diabetes. And what happens with these people is they have some of the type 1 because they have the inflammation associated with the advanced glycation end products and the abnormalities there, but then they also have the insulin resistance, so they have the trophic loss because now what's happened is they've changed their phosphorylation of IRS1, so now they don't respond to insulin the way they originally were. They're insulin resistant. Uh, and so therefore they've got both the trophic loss, the net trophic loss, um, and they've got the inflammation. So that's why we call it type 1.5. Okay, fascinating. So with regards to this APOE and how in type 3 they can often be negative, yeah. where is the influence that APOE has? Because I understand it has, it's, it's thought that it has an influence from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah, so great question about APOE. It's a very interesting story. Uh, it has been known for many years that APOE is what we would call a fat bucket. That is, it carries around fat, and that was thought to be its major job, and it, and it is an important job. But there was something missing because if you have APOE4, it is related to cardiovascular risk, for example. It's related to Alzheimer's risk. It's the most important genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's. It is related to a number of other things, for example, a pro-inflammatory state, of course. It is related to longevity. So centenarians are underrepresented with respect to APOE4. Um, and then also it does seem to have played a role in evolution. It's different than the uh, APOE of our predecessors, and yet for 96% of all of, of hominid evolution, since hominids appeared between five and seven million years ago, for 96% of that time, it was only APOE4. Everybody was an APOE4 homozygote. It's only been in the last 220,000 years, interestingly occurring around the time that we think of as modern humans as emerging, uh, then, then that there's been this change. And so what Tuck Finch from USC has argued, I think is a very interesting argument and compelling argument. And what Tuck has suggested is that when people came down, when hominids descended from the simians, we came down out of the trees and we're walking on the savannah, you know, what did we have? We had a more inflammatory environment. We stepped on dung, we interacted, we were fighting with other people, we were fighting with other, or other, other hominids, um, fighting with the food that we were trying to eat, obviously, um, and we were having food that was full of microbes, full food, of course, that was not cooked originally. So many, many different things where it was in our best interest to have a pro-inflammatory state. And in fact, people who live in third world squalid environments actually do better with APOE4. Now, however, our current environment where there's less of that sort of challenge, 
people actually have a greater longevity in, on average with APOE3. Well, the good news is, okay, we can identify people with APOE4 and get them on an appropriate program so that they do very, very well for very, very long. So the question was, how does this work? Why is this something that's so critical in Alzheimer's risk? So we started a project seven years ago, actually, in the lab, and this was led in our lab by Ramohan Rao, uh, who's I've been in the lab for many years and is doing some very exciting work um, on a number of things related to Alzheimer's risk. And what, what Ram found was very interesting. What Ram found was that APOE4 is not just a fat bucket. It actually enters the nucleus. So this is a little bit like having someone tell you that your butcher, the guy carrying around the fat, is also a senator because he's actually making the laws of the land. So it turns out that APOE enters the nucleus. And actually, APOE4 binds to about 1,700 different gene promoters. So it actually is a DNA binding factor that literally changes the fundamental program of your cells. And guess what? It changes it toward a more pro-inflammatory state. So in fact, when Ram looked and mapped all these 1,700 different promoters, you could not write a better story for Alzheimer's disease. It had to do with things like NF-kappa B activation and things like glucose control and things like um, synaptic dysfunction, neurite retraction, NF-kappa B activation. All these things turn out to be directly related. And by the way, SIRT1, another one, which is related, of course, to longevity and is related to Alzheimer's because increasing SIRT1 seems to be beneficial. The very reason that you know, people take resveratrol, for example. So it turns out that APOE4 indeed binds the promoter region of SIRT1 and turns it down dramatically. And if you look in the brains of patients with APOE4 and Alzheimer's disease, you will see a markedly reduced level of SIRT1. Wow. So it's really that, like what you're saying here is that APOE is going to be heightening an inflammatory response in a way and then we, when we circle back around and look at what you were discussing at the beginning that when we look at those systemic metabolic drivers anything that's going to predispose that patient towards a greater inflammatory state and in the presence of APOE is going to worsen their prognosis of that switch towards right. neurodegeneration. That's exactly right. So what it really means, just as you said, people with APOE4 are at increased risk for triggering inflammation more rapidly. They have a hair trigger for inflammation. Okay, so again, we can use that to their benefit by saying, okay, now we know, get in early and make sure that you follow your inflammatory status and that you don't activate this too inappropriately. So outside of testing for APOE4, and obviously there's a gamut of tests that we could be using. What other right. tests might you recommend to be determining where someone's status is, what might be contributing towards their uh, Alzheimer's progression, or even what type they might be fitting into? Right. So we recommend a series of tests, and we look at typically about 100 different variables, including some historical variables and, and imaging, but mostly blood-related tests. And certainly we start with genetics. APOE is an important one, but we also look at other things as well. There's a whole, there are about 100 different genes at this point that are associated with Alzheimer's disease, APOE simply being the most important. Uh, but then we also look at, as we were talking about earlier, we look at hormonal status. We look at inflammatory status, and typically with the inflammatory status, we look at things like HSCRP, IL-6, TNF-alpha, 
And then we like to look at albumin to globulin ratio because it's a very simple and inexpensive thing to look at. And we like to keep people up around 1.8 or above for their albumin to globulin ratio. And this actually came from Dr. Kenneth Seaton from Australia who uh, was first talking about the, re the relationship between albumin-globulin ratio and cognitive change. Uh, so we look at those, and there, of course there are other things you can look at as well. Then we look at hormonal status, and with that we, we look at not just you know, are you within normal limits, but are you optimal with respect to everything from estradiol to progesterone to estrogen, uh, estradiol to progesterone ratios, uh, testosterone, total and free, pregnenolone, uh, then vitamin D, which as you know is, is really a hormone. It's a you know, nuclear hormone just like these others. Um, to free T3, free T4, TSH, and we also look at reverse T3. It's been suggested that the ratio of free T3 to reverse T3 is one of the better ways you can look at uh, thyroid function. And then, of course, ultimately, you really want to know, does the thyroid that you're measuring in the blood, does it actually you know, do the appropriate thing and give you the function. Obviously, it's got to bind to its receptors. It's got to change the uh, transcription in the cell. So we really want to know something very simple, which is basal body temperature. Some people like to use instead Thyroflex, mm -hmm. which is a nice way to go, um, looking at the rapidity of the reflexes um, as a very good way to look at your activity of your thyroid function. And then, of course, cortisol levels, uh, absolutely critical. Very high cortisol levels are associated with hippocampal damage, as Robert Sapolsky and others have shown. Um, so th this is an, another important area to look at. Then we look, of course, at methylation, one carbon metabolism, and look at MTHFR status and MTRR status and CBS and all these sorts of things in the genetics, and are they contributing? Do you have a high homocysteine? Homocysteine, by a number of mechanisms, um, contributes to cognitive decline. For example, it's associated with a post-translational modification on protein phosphatase 2A, which reduces its activity, and therefore you get a net increase in phosphotau. So we want to look at methylation status as well. Of course, we want to look at vitamin D status, and people tend to err on the side of you know, having too low, walking around with vitamin Ds of 20, 21, 22, when we'd like to see them more in the 50 to 100 range. Um, an interesting work that just came out recently on, uh, on multiple sclerosis showing improved outcomes with people with higher uh, vitamin D levels over 50 in that case. Uh, so we look at all those things and then for, especially for people with, with uh, to, uh, any suspicion of type 3, we look at toxins and so we especially are interested in your status with respect to heavy metals. We want to look at, at, um, uh, at metal homeostasis in everybody, so copper-zinc ratios, um, RBC magnesium, um, selenium, uh, all these things are critical. And then we want to know your heavy metal status, so we want to know do you have mercury, and they're definitely Although mercury it does not seem to be a very common cause of cognitive decline, um, no question for some people, and we've seen it repeatedly, for some people it is the dominant player. And it's something that's, as you know, relatively fixable. And these people do very, very well when you get their, uh, when you get their uh, mercuries back to, to optimal levels. Okay, fantastic. So that's quite a range. And uh, out of there, would there be a couple that you might see as like a clinical priority it sounds like the albumin to globulin ratio is perhaps one that we'd certainly be looking at and obviously apoe for right is there could you narrow it down to maybe a cluster just because 
you know, I'd, I'd probably put vitamin D, I'm assuming, in that Absolutely. list. And I guess looking at those those values there that you're giving is for the states. And so typically here we're seeing, which I think those values correlate pretty much to 100 to 150 nanomoles. Yeah. Uh, is there any other that you'd put in terms of a, a very much first baseline okay. testing? HSCRP. HSCRP. I would absolutely put that in. And then, of course, and then the other one is fasting insulin. So glucose metabolism is huge. And, in fact, I think it's one of the more common contributors. The typical person we see um, often is going to be low in free T3, is going to have a high uh, fasting insulin um, above uh, 4.5 milli IUs per mil. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, people who have, um, of course, hemoglobin A1Cs that are above 5.5 and are getting into the kind of pre-diabetic range or fasting blood sugars above 92, um, all those are critical. Okay, great, thank you. Now with regards to other toxic compounds, and I understand that you know molds and you're doing particular testing for molds and the influence that can have on Alzheimer's disease, would you mind explaining that a little bit further? So very good point. Um, so this has been a really difficult area, and I'd say that people with the type 3 that turn out not to be due to mercury, but for example to be due to biotoxins, especially mycotoxins, they have been the most difficult to treat. And what we found was a few years ago, we first published the work showing reversal of decline. We, out of our first 10 people, nine of them improved. The 10th the one did not. And she was very far along in the illness, but relatively young. She, she actually became symptomatic when she was in her late 50s. Uh, and, uh, and so in her case, what we found was we started looking at, okay, people who are not responding. Now, to, initially we thought, okay, well, she was very far along in her presentation, that, that maybe that's all it is. But we started seeing a repeated pattern of people, and this is what became type 3, we recognized ultimately as type 3. These were young people, typically in their 50s, as I mentioned, often around the time of menopause, who would present with cortical symptoms, who would um, have a fairly severe problem relatively rapidly. Um, And when we looked at the typical metabolic profile, they really didn't fit it very well. They are typically ApoE4 negative. They had difficulty with things like organization, lots of synaptic loss often associated, for example, with uh, loss of cortical volume as opposed to just mainly hippocampal. And when we started to, actually started by calling all the spouses of all these people and just started to talk with them about, you know, where have they been? What have they done? What happened to these people? And they were typically people who were family history negative and especially, as I mentioned, they're mostly ApoE4 negative. So I thought, you know, what is going on? What are we missing here? And we started to see a repeated pattern where these people had been exposed to various toxins. And for example, I was talking to one of the families and said, well, you know, can you tell me about, I was going through things and I said, well, what about mold? And said, oh, yeah, we, we've had mold in the house for years, but nobody pays any attention to it. And, yeah. Yeah, you know, that, that can't be fixed. And so we started looking at, is it possible that these sorts of things are contributing? And certainly the work of Dr. Richie Shoemaker had suggested that certainly people that he sees who have mycotoxin exposure will often have some cognitive changes. It's just that nobody had checked to see if they have amyloid, to see if they have phosphotau, do they fulfill the classical criteria for Alzheimer's. So we started to look at this further and started to send people to test their house. We then also did the test that Shoemaker has suggested for SIRS. We did the the standard C4A, TGF-beta-1, MSH, HLA-DRDQ, Marcon's testing, VCS testing, and these people came up positive 
almost to a one on these things. So that was published a year ago. And we were surprised to see that this is really a, a hidden epidemic. And what we realized is it's been hidden by the fact that there is this big spike. There's this, there are so many people out there with Alzheimer's disease something like 30 million people globally and about 5.2 million Americans and something like what 350 or 400,000 Australians all have uh, all have Alzheimer's disease and so hidden under that huge peak is this group about 10 to 15 percent that seem to have what we named inhalational Alzheimer's disease and the reason we called it that was because we couldn't really call it SIRS because as Shoemaker told me no, you can't call it SIRS because they don't, their lab values are the lab values of SIRS, but they don't have, and for most of them, the asthmatic components, they don't have the other components, they don't have the allergic peripheral components. So by definition, they don't really fit under the SIRS umbrella, and yet their labs are classic SIRS labs. So we've looked at why is that. One possibility is that they had more of the SIRS symptoms earlier, and this is a little bit like looking at tertiary Lewis as opposed to primary and secondary, and indeed we have some people that fit that perfectly. Earlier on, they had some of the SIRS features, they got rid of those, and then later on, they ended up with the cognitive decline. Other people though, as far as we can tell from their histories, they never had the SIRS-associated changes, and yet the lab values suggest that they do. Now, of course, the ultimate goal is you're not gonna be sure that that's actually the problem until you fix it. And as I say, they are the hardest to fix, but we do have a few people now who are turning around beautifully with treatment of their SIRS-like laboratory abnormalities. We find, in fact, repeatedly that they do have molds, and it's typically the, the usual neurotoxin-producing ones. It's the stachybotrys, it's the aspergillus, it's the penicillium, and sometimes ketomium. Those are the big ones. Um, and when we get rid of those in the homes, when we treat these people, including the, the intranasal VIP, mm -hmm. um, they do tend to get better over time. Now, one of the things we're interested in right now is, do they also need to have antifungals? That is, as you probably know, that's not part of the Shoemaker protocol, but others would argue that we should include those. So this is still very much an area of controversy. Great. And just to clarify, the SIRS is chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Yes, good point. Yeah, yeah, I should have said you. that. So CIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, as Shoemaker uh, dubbed it. Yeah, thank you. So outside of, you know, we've got some great testing there and to, to try and find that, determining on what is it that's impacting the presentation or that metabolic abnormality that's creating the ultimate problem of neurodegeneration in that patient. When you start to see that some of these are abnormal and in that patient how do you go about treatment like how do you sort of structure your treatment are you diving in there with um, synthetic hormones or depending upon what the issue is or are you diving in there with strong antibiotics or treating the insulin resistance or do you start with dietary and lifestyle interventions would you mind explaining your uh, treatment approach for Alzheimer's disease that you're getting great reversal with sure so it's very much personalized. So we look for each person at you know, what's driving the process. So for example, we're gonna be treating someone differently if they've got insulin resistance from someone who doesn't have insulin resistance, for example. Um, someone's low in their estradiol, that's gonna be different from someone who's optimal with their estradiol, for example. So yeah, so we correct the 
abnormalities in what I would call the suboptimal. So the idea is that if someone's walking around with a vitamin B12 of 350, um, that's and in, in the U.S. 200 to 900 is quote within normal limits. Uh, so we want people to be above 500. We want them to be optimal. And, and experts in this area, some have suggested even that you should be above 1,000 so that there's a lot of, the argument has been that there's probably a lot of B12 deficiency um, in the Western world. But for what, it, you know, however you want to look at it, walking around with something in the 200s or 300s um, is repeatedly been proven to be suboptimal. And for example, people will get things like pernicious anemia, even at the low end of what's quote normal. So we, we take a personalized approach. We've developed an algorithm. And so we actually have a computational algorithm. We, we've worked with a group in Silicon Valley so that we can plug in a whole series of these different lab values. And we can generate from that a look at what are the critical, uh, what are the critical contributors to this? Um, and then, as you said, yes, we do start um, with DESS. We start with the diet, the nutrition, the exercise, the sleep, and stress. These are important, and certainly a lot of people turn out to have sleep apnea, no big surprise. There are many people who are walking around getting, you know, four and five and six hours of sleep a night, which is really not good enough, and certainly Dr. Dement has studied this at Stanford for many years and shown what he calls the promise of sleep. Um, huge effects, as you know, and then of course, uh, you know, you could spend an hour on every one of these things. You know, sleep itself, at a time when you're reducing the amyloid in the brain, a time when you're cleansing the brain, a time with the fasting, you're inducing the autophagy. Um, we change then, um, we change the overall metabolism from a carbohydrate-based metabolism uh, to a more good fats-based metabolism, and that turns out to be very important. Um, we look to see whether people have a gluten sensitivity. Obviously, we want to address that for people who are getting inflammation uh, due to that. And of course, there's been a lot of work written about the, the microbiome and the gut. Um, at the moment, that's very important, but we're even more interested in what the biome is um, in the nasopharynx. And there's a, because the, of course, you look at what Alzheimer's looks like, and pathologists years ago said it looks like something that came from the nose because it really affects the so-called rhinencephalon, the nose brain. So um, we're very interested in whether you've had exposure to things like mycotoxins and the things like molds. And then, of course, it can also come from the skin, things like Lyme. Chronic Lyme is associated with cognitive decline, gives you very much of that same type 3 Alzheimer's sort of picture. And we've run into a few people now with chronic Lyme as part of this overall. So we, t and we also optimize hormones, um, optimize uh, metabolism. We want to look at reducing inflammation, and actually we, we use both uh, anti-inflammatories and of course the new pro-resolvins, the whole SPM active approach um, that we've been using in people who have unresolved inflammation. Of course, more importantly is to ask what's causing the inflammation? You know, why are you having this? So our argument is if you're going to be thinking about getting rid of amyloid, first stop to ask what's causing the amyloid? Why is it there? And if you just get rid of the amyloid without getting rid of the cause, you're not really doing yourself a favor. You want to get rid of the upstream cause of this chronic amyloidosis. And when you are getting rid of that cause and through this functional approach, for those that haven't seen your published findings, what's the results that you've been yeah. seeing? The, the results have been unprecedented. So we have... Uh, Back in 2014, we published the first paper to show reversal of cognitive decline, and these were in people 
who were in some cases SCI, in some cases of subjective cognitive impairment, in some cases MCI, mild cognitive impairment, and in some cases people who were early on in Alzheimer's disease, uh, but all in the same pathophysiology. Um, they've done extremely well. We now have over 100 who've come through. We have a paper in press now showing that we have unprecedented improvements in hippocampal volume, for example, with, for example, one guy going from 17th percentile to 75th percentile, just huge changes. Massive. Yeah, massive changes. In fact, the, uh, the neuroradiologist didn't believe it at first, so we actually got the films and sent them to another place separately uh, that actually showed that there, it was a little more than, than it originally had been claimed. <laughs> Um, we also see uh, unprecedented improvements in quantitative neuropsychological testing, so just dramatic improvements. And these take uh, three to six months. Um, they don't happen overnight. Um, you have to keep at it. And as, just as with other functional medicine approaches, you want to continue to optimize over the years. But the good news, we've got people now who have been on this for four years. We don't have a single example yet in which people have responded and they've kept on the program, and yet they have declined. So once they improve, they sustain the improvement and often continue to tweak. They continue to get better and better. We have, on the other hand, had several people who've gone on and off the program. And when they go off the program, they have problems. In fact, our original hope was that because it took so many years to develop this, the hope was once you reversed it, you'd be able to go off the program for 20 years. Turns out that did not happen. And we have some ideas about why that may be, but it's typically it takes people about 10 days to two weeks to start noticing that they're worse again when they go off the program. And our current speculation about that, why that is, is this, this, if you think about you know, why when you send, you send troops to another country like Iraq or something, and okay, if things get better, you don't pull the troops out right away. You say, okay, you know, there was a problem there before, so I'm going to leave a police force there. And it looks like that's the same thing that happens in the brain. You leave the amyloid there. You don't see dramatic decreases in the amyloid per se. What you see is improvements in hippocampal volume. You see dramatic improvements in cognition. But it looks like the brain, having once been bitten, is now concerned about that. And so you basically have the troops sitting there. And my guess is that what you can do is you can depolymerize the amyloid rather quickly to make the oligomers that are fighting the, in the infections, um, but are also, of course, damaging the neurons. So it's still sitting there in uh, essentially a bit of a uh, protective mode. Exactly right. Yeah. Now, you answered my next question, which was going to be time to effect. So it's, right. you're saying it's typically around about three to six months right. when you start to see some progress there. Are there particular symptoms that you might start to see shift first? Yeah. So the, it's interesting. The first thing that, that we see is that people will say, well, wait a minute, they're not progressing anymore. That's the first thing. And, and one, of the, one of the first people who came through, the wife called me up when he started getting better, which in his case was about six months. And she said, you missed the most important thing. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, yes, it's six months. He is doing better. She said, but he started earlier on stopping his decline. And he had been really accelerating in his decline for about 18 months before that. So the first thing we see is that people will notice that they are not declining anymore. And the spouses will tell you this. Um, sometimes the coworkers will say something or people that are interacting with them. And as far as specific symptoms, it uh, depends on what type you have. The people who have type 3, what I'm told is they'll be more engaged. They're more complex. They really have kind of improved their synaptic efficacy in some way. 
Um, they will uh, remember what they are reading better. That's another common one I hear um, that people will say, you know, I used to, uh, some people will actually give up the reading. They say, well, wait a minute, now I, I can read again and I can remember things like I didn't before. Um, sometimes the spouses will say, yeah, they'll tell me which direction to go when I'm driving the car, which they didn't realize before. Um, those are the sorts of things that you hear. Okay, so if we're looking at you know, a moderate time to effect, which is still very quick, I think, for the condition, but in terms of treating with most patients, when we're asking them to make these holistic interventions, sometimes compliance can be a little bit of an issue. Yeah. Do you find that that can still be a factor with these patients? And if so, is there any clinical ways you've found to combat that to help with improving compliance and enhancing motivation? Yeah, this is a huge area and one of the most important areas. No question, the people who have followed this the best have done the best, and, and by the way, this is no different than what Dean Ornish reported with atherosclerosis. The people who followed the program got better, the ones who followed a little bit got a little better, and the ones who didn't follow it didn't get better. We see very much the same sort of thing. Compliance is a big issue, and so what's happened is the people who have supportive spouses and who are themselves pushed to do this tend to do the best and who have supportive clinicians who work with them. And this is one of the reasons that we believe that health coaching is going to be such an important area for the future. As we are changing from simple pills to programmatics, which is really more the future way we'll go, yes, of course it will include drugs, it will include all sorts of therapeutics, but it will also include diet and exercise and hormonal optimization, all these things, we're really into an area of programmatics where we are dealing with a complex organism in a more complex way instead of just giving a single pill. And so therefore, the role for the health coach is a huge one. So the idea is, as soon as you finish evaluating the person and you generate a personalized program for them, the coach jumps in immediately and says, okay, how do we now get you onto this? How do we keep you on this? How do we make sure you're doing this? Because that gives you the best chance at optimal improvement. So with regards to uh, evaluating that client, is there particular questionnaires that you're using or clinical tools to, to provide you with markers along the way? Yes, so the, the, the best markers are, number one, following the metabolism. You know, what we see is, is uh, metabolism and cognition go hand in hand. If people come in with type 1.5 and they've got a you know, hemoglobin A1C of 5.8 and they've got a fasting insulin of 20, and then you see the same thing again, they're typically not going to be getting better. Mm. On the other hand, as that improves, you start to see improvements in cognition. So I find it the most helpful, number one, to do follow-up MRI at some point, six or 12 months, again, with, with volumetrics. It makes all the difference. So whether you use NeuroReader or NeuroQuant, you know, whatever, um, good to look at volumetrics with the MRI. And then, of course, the most important thing of, of all um, is the actual function. And so uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, are they able to go back to work? Are they able to interact with people? Are they able to drive? Are they able to do all the things? And then you can follow that with things, uh, whether you choose to use uh, Brain HQ or whether you, turn to, you know, choose to use DocKeem or CogState or, or any of these other things. Um, they're all helpful. You can use these um, online assessments, whether you like to just use MOCA. MOCA is easy, Montreal Cognitive Assessment. 
um, free online, available. Um, it's not terribly sensitive, but it's a it's a you know 10 minute you can do it, um, and I, I frequently do it with the people just to see where they stand. And there are different versions of it so that they don't simply remember the test that they took before. And how often would you recommend retesting that? So I think in general it's good anywhere between three and six months. So okay. again, that's kind of the, the, the time. So you know, if you test someone, whether you test them at four months or six months, and then again at another four to six months, that's kind of a typical time, and that's when you should beginning be beginning to see changes. And if you're not, then you want to look at troubleshooting. What's working? What's not working? Um, is there a disconnect between the metabolism and the cognition? When we do see that, we usually don't see that, but when we do see it, it triggers a suspicion about type 3 because often then what's happened is, yes, they've improved their metabolism, but they have an ongoing problem with biotoxin exposure. Yep. And we need to then be investigating through case history, looking through, like you're saying, through the house, through the history, where are they getting these toxins from, and then exactly. potentially running some of those screening tests. Yes, and of course, there are, you can also look um, for those specific uh, issues. You can look at urine, so real-time uh, data, for example, looks at uh, urine mycotoxins. You can also look, for example, at uh, uh, antibodies uh, against specific uh, fungal strains, and so you can look at that as well. So there are a number of ways to get at that. Okay, great. So it's clear that when we determine that there's something going on, we can definitely do something about it. And ideally, we want to be able to catch this early. So yeah. how is it that we can not wait until our patients start to present with these signs and symptoms? How can we be starting to screen them earlier? Do you have any advice about what we can be looking for, tools that we can be using? Right. And I think this is the biggest societal implication of all. The approach we've taken has been a very backwards one in the past where we wait until someone is very late in the process and then we say, okay, there's nothing we can do for you. Commonly I hear someone say, said, well, I went in last year and I had MCI, so they said come back in a year. You know, that is not helping the person. And I should, I should digress for one moment and just to say there's no guarantee. Of course, we see people who don't respond. But the earlier the better. We see better and better responses the earlier and earlier we look. And if you look, for example, just at the 2.25% of the population, so 7 million Americans, for example, are APOE4 homozygotes, very high risk for Alzheimer's. 99.9% .9 of them don't know that they are APOE4 homozygotes until they start to have problems. So what we'd like to do is everybody, when you get to 45 at the latest, and you know if you're past 45, fine, then get a check now. Just as you go in for a colonoscopy when you're 50 or older, you want to go in for a, quote, cognoscopy. That's a, a bad uh, word. It's a, not a very melodious word and kind of has some bad implications. But the bottom <laughs> line is you want to get checked out. And there are some simple things you can do, the you know, biochemistry you can do, the genetics you can do, um, and you can do some online cognitive assessments that are inexpensive and quick and, and, and you know, readily available. So I recommend to everybody, get checked out. Don't wait until you have cognitive changes. And that way, you won't be surprised. You'll be able to pick up when you're early on in the very features that are going to lead to cognitive decline. And you'll be able to prevent yourself from having problems in the long run. Just imagine what we could do for the tremendous, for the curling of 15% of the population develops Alzheimer's disease. It's horrible. Imagine what we could do for the global burden of dementia if everybody would get checked out early. Certainly, and I think you raise a very good point considering how many people you know you might see are sleeping in terms of just waiting for Alzheimer's to come on because when we look at the rates of metabolic disorders in the world and how, how these are rising and then 
a simple screening tool such as just finding out if you're APOE4 positive and then being able to know that let's get onto this and let's, let's make sure we address those systemic driving factors. Absolutely. And you can do this in a relatively simple way. You can just check a few of these parameters and just see where you stand. Okay, easy. And that gives us a fantastic clinical advice to be using with our patients. So, and I like the idea of the cognoscopy to mm -hmm. be checking them early. And it's just something that we screen in our patients as they start to move into that next period of their lives, perhaps. Absolutely. So then with that, I, something that I always like to ask everyone, Dale, is what is it that you do in your life? Like what are areas where you put the focus on to make sure that you can maintain your health and your cognition through your age? Right. You know, this is, so I'm in my 60s now. It's a very good question. Um, and I've been talking to my wife, who's a family practitioner, about this recently because we're realizing, you know, the, you're, what, what do we do for work? You're sitting at the computer. You're doing a lot of sitting and listening. You're going to lectures. You're flying. You may not get enough sleep. Um, you're under stress to get uh, grants out and things like that. So the natural inclination for all of us is to be on the wrong side of the curve for cognitive decline. And so, you know, no big surprise that so many of us suffer from that. So, you know, what we are trying to do is, first of all, I, mean, I have to say I've changed my diet in the last few years just dramatically. Uh, you know, my previous diet was kind of your typical uh, grab something on the go whenever you can, uh, you know, eat some meat, um, eat some potatoes. Um, and of course, I would stay up late at night uh, doing emails and things. So there's nothing better to stay up late at night than to grab a Coca-Cola, which turns out to be you know, the worst possible thing I could be doing for myself. So we've really changed over to we have a much more of a plant-based diet. Um, we use what I talked about actually earlier today, which we think of as the Keto Flex 123 as a simple way to think about it. So one, you want to be inducing a very mild state of ketosis. So you can do that by, you know, you have the fasting periods. You want to use a lot of uh, vegetables and stay away from the simple carbohydrates. And then we use the term flex because you can either be a vegetarian, and we try to eat mostly, you know, salads and, and uh, uh, green leafy vegetables and, and different colors of vegetables, and then good fats, a lot of avocado, and then also things like MCT oil or coconut oil, um, again, which help you um, get more toward a lipid-based diet um, and away from the simple carbohydrate-based diet. Um, try to keep the stress down. Some people like to use uh, a program which is called Neural Agility, um, easy to use, um, and it's, uh, it's been described as meditation on steroids. I have to say, when I was in the lab, the last thing I ever thought I would be talking about was meditation and yoga <laughs> and things bet. like this. But you know, the molecular biology tells you you've got to think about that stuff. You know, you, it, it's driving you towards something where you can't deny it. These things are absolutely critical. So, and then exercise. In fact, that, that's why I asked you to do the, the, the talk early today. I'm headed for the gym next. Um, because we don't want to be sitting around too much. Um, it's, it's, it's literally not the way we organisms were made to live. So I've tried to do better on the sleep. I do take melatonin at night when I go, and I've noticed a difference. Uh, melatonin gives me more dreams. Um, it makes me wake up feeling more refreshed. Um, so I find that that's helpful for people who are uh, for people who are ruminating, um, we usually recommend tryptophan. Um, I, so I occasionally take some tryptophan or 5-HTP, either one, like you know, 100 milligrams of 5-HTP, just occasionally. Um, so uh, again, try to get enough sleep. Try to, I try to confine my 
eating to eight to 10 hours of the day. So it gives me a big fast, and this is something recommended by others as well. Um, so try to make sure to have a, that, a good minimum of uh, 12 hours uh, fast. Uh, and then, uh, you know, try to keep the stress down and try to, uh, you know, whatever, you know, what, whether you like meditation, I tend to like to um, either uh, go for walks. Uh, we do a lot of uh, hiking in Marin County, which is a beautiful place to hike. Uh, I find that that's a, a really good way. Um, and then, uh, you know, I look at um, appropriate metabolic parameters and um, if, you know, um, uh, you know, tr I do take a few supplements, um, things like alpha lipoic acid, for example. Um, I do take some vitamin D uh, and um, try to keep my vitamin D in, in an optimal range uh, is one of the things, for example. Great. So, I mean, essentially what you've just described there is good, rounded, healthy living. What? Looking at your diet, exercise, sleep, and it just keeps coming back to the, the basic fundamentals of what we know yeah. keeps our metabolism in check and keeps us healthy, really, isn't it? Right. It's a wellness prescription with the one caveat being don't, uh, you know, don't ignore the numbers. So in other words, the, the good news about the approach we're taking is you don't have to do it blind. You, know, you can look and see what are the things that are actually, you can kind of look under the hood, as it mm. were. Instead of just saying, okay, I'm gonna do good things and see how it goes, well, you can look under the hood and see how are you doing? And do you need to make some changes? Do you need to be, uh, you know, do you need to push harder in one area than the other? That's where these metabolic profilings can be so helpful. Yeah, like in one individual, maybe where they've got a predisposition towards poor body composition, they maybe need to tweak their diet a little bit harder compared to another individual where maybe sleep or stress is the issue. Absolutely. And then, you know, people where the methylation is an issue and then people where lipids are an issue, you know, you can address these things. Yeah, great. So where do you see the future is going to take you for the research and through the treatment for Alzheimer's? Yeah. So I've never been so excited since the 27 years that we've had the lab uh, going. I've never been so enthusiastic as I am now. I think this is an exciting time. I recognize that what we're reporting, what we've reported to date, is just a toe in the water. This is just the absolute beginning. There's a lot more to do. There's a lot more that can be done. And so to me, the next step is larger and larger data sets. And we've been talking to a group at the Institute for Systems Biology. They've been doing these very large data sets. Um, the, the push is going to be toward more computation and toward more involvement where we can uh, take advantage. I mean, look, we take advantage of this in our iPhones. Why are we not taking more advantage of these sorts of Silicon Valley approaches with our everyday medicine? They should be readily available online, and that's the sort of thing that we're doing. Um, and then to become a really more of an activist, to say, look, we need to go out, we need to find a way as a society to identify and help so that anyone who wants to come forward and say, well, you know, I'd like to have, and, and you know, again, in, a, in an anonymized way, I'd like to make sure that I don't get this illness. Um, you know, we could take a large chunk out of the global burden of dementia if people would, would really be serious about prevention. Great, and I look forward to seeing the technologies and through that data, see how we can yeah. accumulate that, help our patients monitor themselves and help us intervene earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you have any other resources that you could refer practitioners or patients towards to find out more information about this? Absolutely. So uh, we have practitioner training. Uh, we had the first in April, uh, had people from, from the UK and from Australia and New Zealand and all over the US. Um, we've set up a website, mpicognition.com, um, and then we also have a book coming out, it should, should be in May of next year, of 2017, 
uh, which will be coming out uh, through Random House and Penguin, uh, and Carolyn Sutton, who's a well-known and an excellent uh, neuroscience editor, will be our editor. So we're very enthusiastic about that. And that goes through all the nuances. It's hard to get through everything in an hour or two. Um, this has a lot of the nuances um, that, are, that are helpful in this approach. Fantastic. Dr. Bredesen, you're an absolute wealth of information. We could talk about this for days, and as you mentioned, an hour is certainly not enough time to cover all the complexities of this. So thank you so much for your time, and we really appreciate the information. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.